Now then, thank you for coming to the 1030 service. It's a little warmer. Everybody okay? You're good. Excellent. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians 3, and I'm going to retreat to a safe distance from the edge of the stage. If you'll open your Bibles with me in Ephesians chapter 3, and I'd love for you to have either the sermon notes on the app or in your bulletin because today I would love to do something that we were always able to do when I was a missionary in Mexico and read the Bible together. That's much harder to do here in the U.S. because there's so many different translations. But if you have your bulletin, you'll see that I've printed out the passage today, and that passage in front of you is a prayer. Paul is writing to a church his preaching started in the ancient city of Ephesus. It's an important city. It's a city of great distinction within the Roman Empire, but it's a dark city. It was a city notoriously dedicated to idolatry and to witchcraft. Residents, the new believers that Paul is going to raise up through the preaching of the gospel in Ephesus, have literally spent a fortune on the occult. There's a very unlikely place for a church to start up. Paul has as close a relationship with them probably as any church in the New Testament. Later, the apostle John himself, we believe, is actually going to serve as one of the primary pastors of this church. It's an important family. And one of the things that is always countercultural when we Americans come to, the, come to the Bible is that because of our fiercely individualistic culture, we read the Bible and we are continually hearing me, me, me. We're individualistic. It's the way we were raised. It's the way our culture is shaped. Technology has made it even more immersive. You can use a smartphone and, and some earbuds to completely surround yourself with the world of your own curated choosing. The, cry, the church of Jesus Christ is continually saying we. In fact, just as a Bible reading tip, I want you to, when you read the New Testament, make sure that you're not individualizing things that are said to whole churches and to groups of people. If you make your Christianity entirely solo, if you make it about your own journey with Jesus, you'll literally miss half of what Jesus has for you. Because when you put your trust in God, you're literally welcomed into the family of God, into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one God who eternally exists as three persons. You're already in community with God himself. But you're not only invited to be saved yourself and to walk all by yourself with Jesus, you're placed into God's family represented in the local church. What we're doing on this corner, what missionaries and local churches across America are doing all across the world matters because we belong, according to God's plan, not only to God, but we also belong to each other. And that's why Paul's letters always surge with so much love and passion. Being an apostle and a preacher of the gospel and a church starter is not Paul's hustle. That's not his gig. He finds himself surprised, as the Ephesians would have been, that Paul was saved not out of witchcraft, but out of the legalism of his Judaism. 
into a relationship with Jesus that is based on the sacrifice of Jesus, not Paul's righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus himself. And Paul discovers to his enduring surprise that he, an Orthodox Jew, is not only now in the family of God, but he has a family spread out across the Roman Empire. Everywhere these little churches start up in homes in places like Rome and Ephesus, Paul calls these people his brothers and sisters. He calls them part of his beloved family. And in Ephesians chapter 3, you get to listen in to one of the two times in the letter that Paul prays for them. Here's a little thought experiment. If God gave you the opportunity to pray to him with the certainty that on the day you prayed, the thing you asked for would be granted. One thing, and you had the absolute certainty that God would answer, what would you pray for? It's a big question, isn't it? You might want to pray about what you should pray for. Well, Paul prays twice for the Ephesians in this letter. First prayer is in chapter 1. The second that I'm going to show you is in Ephesians chapter 3. It might surprise you what he prays for. His language, which was, he's, he's writing this in Greek, is so majestic. It's so overwrought, if you will. He, one commentator said, he piles up the words He's not out of control. He's very much under control of the Spirit of God, but his, it's almost as if his heart and mind run away with his pen as he talks to God about these Ephesians. It's one of the pinnacles, in my opinion, I've now discovered, it's one of the pinnacles of the New Testament. It's one of the high points. Years ago, I was excited as a young football fan to discover that the NFL had come up with the technology to wire the players. You ever seen this? They'll put a mic, usually on a superstar, and then the editor has a lot of work because they have a lot of bleeping to do, right? As someone who tried to play football and has been a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan, so you can pray for that if you want to, okay? That's a, that's a tough go for anybody to be a Cowboys fan. Tough go since 1996, but anyway, I digress. To hear amidst the violence of multimillionaires who are genetically gifted and amazingly trained, the things they say to one another, both opponents and teammates, as they try to kill each other to score touchdowns, was endlessly fascinating. It was like having the curtain pulled back and seeing what is really happening. Ephesians chapter 3, in a much more important way, is something like that. Paul's writing a letter to them, but you're going to see the language is so deep and so rich, it kind of goes in two or three directions at once because he is so excited to pray for them, and what he says he prays for might change your perspective on how we should pray for each other. There's never been a time probably in your Christian life and mine that we more needed to hear what Paul prayed for and have that request answered for ourselves. Look with me, please, in Ephesians chapter 3. And this is one of the cool things. I want you to read with me Ephesians chapter 3, please. And read with me from the bulletin, his prayer, Ephesians chapter 3. And we'll read from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. This is what the Bible says. Read with me. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. How should we pray for each other? If we're family, church means congregation, assembly, there is no individual church. It's impossible. A church is a gathering that belongs to Jesus, that is called together by Jesus. We come together in the presence of Jesus. That's why the language of we and us runs right through this prayer. How should we be praying for each other? In your little circle of relationships that you may have within this church, and every Sunday I meet new people, and I would say to those new people, we don't want this to be a TED Talk. We want this to be a community for you. Our church has grown to the size where nobody, not even me, can know everybody that's here, but we want, at, we want every single individual that calls Cross Point home to know that you are known and that you are loved here, that you have people that will celebrate with you when life is good, that you have people that will cry with you and walk with you and put their shoulder beneath your burden when life is hard. Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and he begins with something characteristically un-Jewish. Did you notice? He said, I bow my knee. The Jewish custom was to pray when standing and raise hands. Paul seems to literally have been brought low. He says to these Ephesians, to these former pagans, to these former practitioners of idolatry and of witchcraft, I bow my knees before the Father, the real Father, the God who is there, Paul says, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In the ancient world, what mattered most was to know your name. Once your father's name was known, once your hometown was mentioned, people knew pretty much everything they thought they needed to know about you. The ancient world didn't have the upward mobility that we enjoy in 21st century America, where it doesn't particularly matter where you came from or who your father was. You can make a name and you can make a way for yourself, not in the ancient world. This is why you may remember someone early on hearing about Jesus said basically, from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus preaches in his hometown, and they said, isn't this, isn't this Joe's boy? Isn't he the carpenter's kid? Pretty good with wood, hammer, and a saw, but no. We know his dad. This can't be the Messiah. Paul says that God the Father gives, it says, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, human families exist because God is a father. 
We take our identity, we find our authority and our position from Him, whether we know it or not. And Paul says, I'm speaking to the God who most delights in revealing Himself as a Father. He's a king and a creator, but His favorite way of explaining Himself to people is that He is a Father. And I'm praying to Him, verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, In other words, from his vast resources, from the God who names every family, who gives everyone their life and identity from the riches of his glory, here's the prayer request. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And the people said, maybe amen, maybe so what? There's a lot there that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Let me simplify this for you. Paul is praying that we would, we collectively, we the church, it begins obviously with an individual commitment to Jesus, but Paul is praying that we both individually and collectively would be granted one thing from God. It may not be what you expected. Paul said, I am praying that you may be made stronger, that you would be spiritually stronger. That may not be what you've been praying for through all this time. This morning I recorded, I walked out in the wetlands as I do almost every morning, and I recorded a little video on a bench I sat on in the middle of March this year. I just wanted to send people a little devotional thought in 60 seconds from the, Lament, from the book of Lamentations that speaks about the faithful love of God. I never imagined that on the edge of September I could sit on the same bench and talk to people again through video that are still living in these pandemic conditions. And can you believe we're still doing this? Look at this beautiful building. We're sitting outdoors in a tent. I know some of you have been brought right up to the breaking point. And when I realized again this week that this is still going to be extended, my heart broke, especially for some of you, because I know how close to the edge you feel already. I want you to note Paul's prayer. A little church, a little group of Christians, a little bit of light in a very dark place, with no one to support them except for the missionary who once started their church through his preaching, who can now only communicate to them in writing. He says, I'm praying that God, who owns and runs everything, who rules over every family on earth, would give you the gift of coming into your life through his spirit and making you stronger. And that's big because I don't know about you, I've spent a lot of time in the pandemic praying for relief. Have you prayed for relief and for changed circumstances through this whole thing? You can, you should. God loves to hear from you in all of your needs, but how counterintuitive is it with two prayers in one letter Paul dedicates the second, and in my opinion, the peak of these two prayers. He says, here's what I'm praying for you. I'm down in my knees in front of the God of the universe asking that you would be stronger. That's different. It's very easy. It's natural to pray for relief and for a change in circumstances. 
I do it every day. There's biblical examples of that too, but let me suggest to you that from the vantage point of eternity, the best thing you can pray for at any point, and especially in a time of trouble, is for spiritual strength. Phillips Brooks said it like this, do not pray for easy lives, pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be. The best thing that could happen to this congregation, the best thing that could happen to the man speaking to you is that I would learn to pray along with Paul for what Paul is asking for here in Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What is that? The inner man or the inner being is your interior life. Please understand this. This is a big biblical concept that isn't taught very often because it's an important idea, but it's not mentioned very often in Scripture. The inner man is your interior life. In other words, that's the spiritual life that God can strengthen apart from your physical body and circumstances. Here's how that works. When you hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners like you and me, and you turn away from your sin and trust him personally, person to person, you say to Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm short of your glory, I have failed you, I have ignored you, I have defied you, I have disobeyed you, I've behaved shamefully, I've brought guilt and all kinds of accusations into my life, it's all my fault, you were right about everything, please save me. At that moment, you are, according to the Bible, a new creation. It's true. In Christ, the old things are over and you are a new person. You remember that experience, those of you who are Christians? At that moment, you became a new person. You were gifted a new interior man, a new woman. That's why Jesus called it being born. What's the other word? You must be born again. Jesus said to one of the most religious people on earth, you must be born again. And the guy completely misunderstood him. He said, I'm a grown man. Look, I'm going to go back in my mother's womb, be born all over again. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical life. That's going to continue. You can look up from the moment you trust Jesus, and nothing in your physical body and in your circumstances has changed. But on the inside, there's a new self. There's a new man, there's a new woman, there's an interior life that relates to God that was dead, that simply did not exist, that God just created. And Paul is saying, I am praying that God will come to you and through his spirit strengthen your interior life, whether your external circumstances change at all. And if you've ever seen, and I have all through this pandemic, from March to this day, including this weekend, I have seen Christians in terrible circumstances, losing jobs, losing money, losing family relationships, losing people on earth to death. I have seen amazing people with failing bodies themselves in the most difficult moments of their life behave like Jesus and be peaceful and loving and self-controlled. And yes, through all their tears, they remain peaceful and strong in Christ. How is that happening? The interior man is expressing himself. Here's Paul's experience with it. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul talked about his own suffering and how he was being renewed on the inside, even though nothing outside was changing. Paul said, we do, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Friends, that's what you want. See, some of you have worn yourselves out to the point of exhaustion. I have sometimes on other days straining against circumstances, fuming at the news, lamenting the injustice of it all, lamenting the losses that are mounting as this continues. If you, in your own strength, set yourself always and only to the task of changing circumstances, you will always be on the point of exhaustion and frustration. Paul says, basically, if I can paraphrase what he just told you in the context of 2 Corinthians, on the outside, they're killing me. 2 Corinthians is probably his most personal and vulnerable letter. There he tells you about how many times they tried to kill him, how he was shipwrecked and imprisoned and beaten and betrayed, how much it had cost Paul to follow Jesus. If Paul were here to preach instead of me, and that would be a great blessing to you, so Paul would probably need help getting up those steps. He would almost certainly be blind. He would almost certainly be covered with defensive wounds. He would be a scarred, tattered mess of a man, stooped over, bent from the beatings that he had endured, worn out from age, from being adrift at sea, from continually going through hunger and privation of all kinds. Paul was in every way a broken man, but on the inside he was strong. He said, on the outside, I'm wasting away, but my inner man is getting stronger. I am being renewed day by day. Why is that? Because God in his love through the grace of his life, of his son, Jesus Christ, can come to you through his Holy Spirit, meet you in your unchanged circumstances, in your failing health, in your financial pressures, in your relational difficulties. He can come with you and meet with you and make you stronger on the inside even as things continue the same on the outside, even as the storm rages stronger around you, you can have interior peace and strength. And that is what Paul is praying for to these Ephesians. And when that happens, we need to understand this strengthening will be by his spirit. It's going to be God's work and it's going to be God's gift. Paul says that he may grant you in other words, this is something that God is going to gift you because he loves you. It's not going to come by you trying harder on your own. If you've been white-knuckling your way through the pandemic, please stop. Please turn to your strong Savior instead and say, Jesus, I am weak, but you're strong. I don't know what's happening, but you do. Your father and mine give their name and their authority and their position to every family on earth. Presidents, kings, governors, authorities, you're in charge of all of them. Your child is weak. Your child is scared. 
I need you to meet with me. I need you to strengthen me. I need to hear from you and your word, and I am here to talk to you in prayer. And you are going to discover, many of you have already lived through this thousands of times before, it's just an easy thing to forget when circumstances are this different, that you can be spiritually stronger. And then Paul says, if we're spiritually strengthened, once we receive that strength from God, we can do two amazing, extraordinary things. Go back to the text and read with me. Paul says, I am praying, middle of verse 16, that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now that you're stronger, Paul says, when you're stronger, here's the two things that will happen. First, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What's that mean? How many of you heard, maybe as children, the phrase to invite Jesus into your heart? Your parents or Sunday school teachers use that terminology with you? A lot of people are really concerned about that terminology, and, and with good reason. Here's how it gets twisted. We tell people, just say this little prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, and then everything's fine. And people don't really understand who Jesus is. They don't understand sin. They don't they just mouth words, but they hold on to that phrase or they hold on to that little prayer and they think that everything has changed and that they really place their trust in Christ because they have this memory. That's bad. It's done a lot of damage. But this idea of Jesus being in the heart, that's actually a biblical idea. It's actually right here in Ephesians 3.17. And it's not the concept of a little childlike understanding of what Jesus is doing. You see, the heart in the ancient world, in the usage of the Bible, that's your life. That's the center of who you are. That's carried over. That's such a powerful idea from the world of the Bible that it's carried over into ours. We say, that guy's all heart. I love you with all my heart. When someone says, I love you with all my heart, you may or may not believe them, but what they're telling you is, I'm all in. Everything I have, I'm not talking about the muscle that's pumping blood inside my body, everything I have is yours. I'm dedicated, I'm devoted to you. Paul says, with this new strength that you have, that God has given you, that has made you stronger, I'm now praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And that just doesn't mean come in. That means that if we're spiritually strengthened, the first amazing thing that Christians can do and should do is make Christ the Lord of everything in our lives. Paul is saying not just come by the heart and have a passing acquaintance with you. Note the word. He says, I am praying that Christ may, what's the verb? We're all reading the same Bible. What's it say? Christ may do what in your hearts? Dwell. What's that mean? That means to settle down. In simple words, what Paul is saying is, I'm praying that God will make you spiritually strong enough so that you will have the spiritual wisdom to bring Jesus into the very center of your life and let Jesus, tell Jesus to make himself at home in your whole life. Watch your email. I'm going to send you a book recommendation from decades ago called My, Christ Marts, My Heart, Christ's Home some of you may be familiar with. But let's just follow the word picture here. If your heart is your life, all of who you are, all that God made, 
And Jesus is a person who you are now inviting into the center of who you are. Just follow that word picture. Can I just ask you if there's any parts of the house he's not welcome into? Do you have any closets maybe that you kind of keep under lock and key? have any junk drawers in your house that you'd rather Jesus not look into? This is how we entertain, isn't it? When we have somebody over, my wife and I put so many things away that we use every single day. Anybody else do this? Like, we're going to use all that stuff tomorrow, but we don't even want you to know that we own it while you're here because it just clutters up the countertops. We want this to look like a magazine for the three hours you're in our home, and as soon as you leave, we can actually get back to the normal, well-worn look it actually has. A lot of people are having kind of a casual on-and-off-again relationship with Jesus, trying to take Jesus on their terms, not his. Paul's saying, you little church, all these pagan influences, with all this remembrance of dark magic, with all of the drunkenness that characterized your old life, that's why it says in Ephesians, stop being drunk with wine and start being controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's a hint of their old life. Drunkenness was considered in some of these religions a spiritual experience. They were getting plastered and thinking that they were communing with God. Paul says, stop doing that. Stop giving control to alcohol. Start giving control to Christ through the Holy Spirit. The best thing you can do is be gifted enough strength from Christ to say to Jesus, Jesus, this is my life. My thoughts, my habits, my wallet my family, my relationships, my marriage, my young kids, my adult kids, they're yours. Make yourself at home. And the journey of discipleship that this church and every individual in it is being invited to is an ongoing lordship of Jesus where we are more and more telling him and being accustomed to the fact that he will not only have a passing acquaintance, but he will actually live in the very center of our lives. Because, church, strong Christians put Jesus in charge. That's one thing I'd like you to remember. Christians who are truly strengthened by Christ put Jesus in charge, and strong Christians have a heart where Christ makes himself at home. That's what verse 17 means when it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Verse 18 tells you the second amazing thing. I'm sorry, read from verse 17 again, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded and love. In other words, Paul is telling them, the Greek language there tells them this has already happened. Listen, you're already rooted in God's family. You're already being nourished by God's love. You've already built, being built strong into the love of God. And with that security, here's the second thing that Paul wants for them. That you, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What's the second thing that happens when you're spiritually stronger? When you're spiritually stronger, you do two things. First, you put Jesus in charge of everything. Weak Christians fight Jesus for control. 
Weak Christians deny Jesus' control. Weak Christians make this terrible, crazy mistake of saying, Jesus can save my soul, but he can't run my family. He can't run my finances. I can't trust him with my job. I can't trust him with my sobriety. I can't trust him with whatever part of the house you want to keep off limits to him. No, strong Christians put him in charge. And number two, strong Christians understand then how much Christ loves us. This is the heart of the prayer and, to me, the most encouraging part. Paul is saying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, in other words, secure in the love of God, may have strength, that God may give you strength, in other words, so that you will have strength to comprehend with all the saints, with all the other Christians, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And this is what I, one of those sections where I, what I'm referring to when, it's said, when I've said that it seems like Paul's heart and mind run away with his pen. A little science quiz for you. It'll be really simple. Don't worry. How many dimensions are there in this reality? How many dimensions are we in right now? Three, right? Painting has two. We're in three. Why then does Paul mention four dimensions regarding the love of God? Did you see that? There's four words. That you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. The breadth and length and height and depth. In other words, how high, how wide, how tall, how deep the love of God is. Why four dimensions? Paul not understand reality? Here's the picture. It's poetry. It's love language. It's like this. Guy says to his girl, I'll climb the highest mountain for you. And she says, climb the highest mountain? You can barely make it to the end of the block. What are you, what are you talking about? This is exalted language to communicate one simple thing that you, because of your past, doubt. That you are literally immersed spiritually in the love of God. That the love of God surrounds you. And it doesn't matter how far you fall or how high you climb up, how far you go in one direction or another, you will always and only be in the love of God. That Christ on the cross, this is the good news. I'm not giving you good advice. I'm announcing good news to you that God in Christ loved you so much that Jesus died for your sins. The shameful things that you're still embarrassed about that you will not admit to anyone, even to him, the things in your heart and in your house that you don't even want to mention to Jesus, Jesus died for those. And you can trust him with all of it. You can trust him with your past, your present, and all your future because anywhere and everywhere you go, you were loved in this way. If you have trusted Christ, you are now rooted and grounded. Paul's even mixing his metaphors. Rooted is planting. Grounded is building. Paul's saying you're deep into God's love and being nourished by it. You are built securely into God's love like a strong building. And when the storms come, you'll still be standing. Jesus used that word image too. And wherever you find yourself, you are going to be so surrounded by God's love that it doesn't matter 
where you go, what you think, or what you do, even then you will be loved. And Paul's prayer is, I want God to make you strong enough to understand this. Because there's not a person alive right now on this side of heaven, including the man who's trying to preach to you, who understands how deep the love of God really is for you. It's deeper than hell and higher than heaven. It surrounds you in every possible way so that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what they do to you, that's Paul's testimony, no matter who betrays you and who mistreats you, you always remain in his love. That's what he wants them to understand, that God's love is our foundation and our ceiling. And to know that God's love, to know that God loves you is to know something that is actually, according to Paul, beyond knowledge. Look at verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Wait, what? Do you see the contradiction there? Paul said, I want you to know something that is beyond knowledge. How's that work? Let's work out the possibilities. Do you think Paul is a bad self-contradictory author? Do you think he lost track of his own thoughts in the space of a few words and contradicted himself? No. It's love that explains it. For three weeks we've been talking about the love of God. I've been trying to persuade you what I've been discovering myself, how much God actually loves you. These last three weeks, and hopefully I've conveyed it just a little bit of that, have been some of the most refreshing things I've ever learned in Scripture to know that I am loved this way independently of who I am because of who Jesus is. is just absolutely incredible. And the thing with love is anyone who has truly been loved can know they are loved and still find that that love is beyond their understanding. Anyone who's been in a long-term, stable, good, loving marriage has a good picture of this. I've been dating Sharice for 30 years. We've been married for 27. She would say that I don't date her nearly as often as I used to in all those years. She's probably right. Here's the way it works. Early on, my early 20s, I knew I loved her. So one day, actually on the night her sister got married, I proposed to Sharice. Bad timing. You don't, don't ever do that, okay? <laughs> Let the older sister have her moment. Uh, propose the next day, not the same night. Okay? I couldn't stand it any longer. I got on one knee in an elevator, in an elevator of all places, and just anxiously pulled the ring out of my pocket and asked her if she'd marry me. And when she eventually said yes, First she said, did you ask my dad? And that, that, uh, that kind of gave me a moment of pause. I knew at that moment that I was loved. 30 years later, with all we've been through together and with all that I've dragged her through as her husband, I know I'm loved much more. Sometimes you have to be loving someone and to be loved by someone for a long time to understand it. 
When I was a very young married man, I'd have the privilege and honor of meeting people who have been married 50, 60 years, and they've loved each other from day one, and 60 years later, nothing has changed. And in my immaturity, I think, my goodness, what do you see in each other? But now, halfway to that, th those kinds of numbers, I understand it better now. There's a love there, there's a depth there, there's a security and a safety and a familiarity and a confidence there that you just can't have in your first few years, no matter how good they are. That's the kind of love that Paul is telling the Ephesians he wants them to have. In fact, he says, this love is so extraordinary and so vast that it's like being flown out 20 miles offshore and dropped into the middle of the Pacific Ocean, no matter how far you swim on your own strength, you're still going to be in the ocean. It won't make any difference. You'll still be surrounded. That is the vastness of the love of God. That's why Paul says, I want you to know it, even though it really is beyond knowing. You'll spend the rest of eternity understanding day by day, that will be one of the attractions of heaven, to know how much you are loved by God. And every day in heaven, you will know that you are loved a little bit better than the day before. Paul says, I'm praying that right now on earth, with all your struggles and with all your trials, you will know that. Because to experience God's love, Paul says, fills you with his fullness. And this love of God is a fact and an ongoing discovery. You can know it today and spend the rest of your time enjoying it and discovering it. Paul closes, and so do I, with a doxology that I'd like us to read together. Doxology is in verse 20. It's a word of praise to God. Read it with me, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Paul wrote this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul closes his little prayer, brief but powerful, with a word of praise to God, that God who loves us this much who will need to gift us with his own strength so that we can begin to wrap our minds around the idea that he loves us this much. He says that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And he does that according to the power at work within us. He does it with the same strength that he gives us. May that God be glorified in the church, in our relationships, in our life together, because it's we, not me. May he be, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What is Paul saying here? That God makes us strong. God can make us strong to do more than we imagine or ask. That's quite an encouraging thought, Christian, in times like these. See, the number one prayer in the pandemic, the number one frustration I've heard, the number one frustration I've felt myself is, I just want things to go back to normal. And so many people have told me, don't, don't use the word new normal. I might punch you in the face. I hate the phrase new normal. I don't want this to be normal. Please hear the doxology. 
Paul is telling the Ephesians, I'm praying that you will be strengthened, that God himself will come to you in the Holy Spirit and make you stronger than you are. Though nothing may change on the outside, I want you to be so strong on the inside that you'll have the wisdom to put Jesus in charge of your whole life and so that you will have the strength along with all the other Christians in the world to know how vast the love of God is for you. Because this God, he's the one that deserves the glory in the fellowship of the church. He's the one that deserves the glory in our individual lives. And this is the God who does and can do more than you've even imagined, dreamed, or dared to ask him about. What if we entrusted ourselves to Jesus as his disciples and said to him, Jesus, we are frightened, we are diminished, we have lost some things, we are grieving, we are angry, we are fearful. Just tell him the whole truth and say, would you please come to us in the Holy Spirit and make us spiritually stronger so that we can actually, in this time of trouble, put you in charge of us as individuals and as a church and give us the confidence as we go forward of how much you love us and do more than we even know to ask you. What if Christians were settling by saying we want things to get back to normal since we're talking to a God that is better and can do more than we've even dreamed or we can even hold in our minds? That's the God who deserves the glory. That's the God you can trust with your life, with your family, with your very soul because he loves you. Let's pray. Christian, can I just give you a moment to talk to Jesus and put him in charge? Do you invite him over to the dark corners of the house? Let him shine the light in. Don't restrict him. He's not a guest. He owns the place. If you don't know Christ, can I invite you right now to trust him? Maybe God in his kindness could use all of this global upheaval to save your soul. You would finally in all of these pressures just give up on yourself and trust Jesus instead. Father, thank you for loving us this way. Just like everything else in your word, Lord, I, I really just barely tasted it myself. I can't begin to adequately explain to anybody just how deep your love is, how much, Jesus, you deserve to be loved and trusted with the whole house, with our whole heart, with our whole lives. Lord, if there's a single person here who doesn't know you, I pray that right now would be the time they would turn to you in prayer while I'm quiet and they would call out to you for salvation. And for the disciples that are here, Lord, young and old, the kids over in children's ministry, Lord, please, we ask for your sake and for your glory that you would make us strong, spiritually strong, strong to put you in charge, strong to rest in your love so that you may do more than we've ever dared to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you, folks. Listen. 
If you've made spiritual decisions or you have questions, please text us. Text the name Jesus to that number that's in your bulletin or on the screen, 714-868-7258. You can send me an email from the church website if you'd rather as well. If you're new, I love to meet new people. I have the awesome privilege of doing so almost every week since we moved outdoors. I'd love to meet you. I'll be right over there. And you can see it's cool. I mean, you come to the hot service, okay? You come in the heat of the day. It is, what is it, 75 degrees? Scorching out here on the parking lot. As soon as this is over, it's going to look like an ant uh, hill here. We're going to sweep through and pick all of this stuff up and take it into the auditorium. It's great. We love it. We're committed to doing it for as long as we need to, but it takes a lot of manpower. We're trying to make a bigger rotation, men, women, and kids, just anybody that's able-bodied and willing to help, to set up and to take down. Either one that you're willing to do, we would love to have your help. If you'll go to the picnic table, someone will meet you over there, and we'll take whatever time and effort you can offer to us to make outdoor church work. Remember, children's ministry came back today. We're just going to keep expanding and offering more and more as we figure things out, as we go through this together. We're not going to go it alone. We're going to go through it with Christ and with each other. God bless you. Goodbye.